Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. Welcome once again to Grief and Rebirth Podcast, whose mission is to educate, enlighten, and provide healing choices through interviews with grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and people who have inspiring stories to share. I'm Irene Weinberg, the creator and host of Grief and Rebirth Podcast, with a loving reminder that you can see the full show notes and all Grief and Rebirth Podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Our truly extraordinary guest today is Dr. Terry Daniel, who is a hospice and hospital trained clinical chaplain certified in death, dying, and bereavement by the Association of Death Education and Counseling and in trauma support by the International Association of Trauma Professionals. The focus of Terry's work is to assist dying and grieving individuals to discover a more spiritually and socially spacious understanding of death, grief, and beyond. Terry conducts workshops throughout the United States to help the dying and the bereaved focus on inner transformation rather than external events. Her work is acclaimed by physicians, hospice workers, grief counselors, and clergy for its pinpoint clarity on the process of dying and grieving. Terry has a BA in Religious Studies from Mary Hurst University, an MA in Pastoral Care from Fordham University, and a Doctor of Ministry in Pastoral Care and Counseling from the San Francisco Theological Seminary. Terry, welcome to Grief and Rebirth Podcast. I'm looking forward, oh, you're welcome. I'm looking forward to what will surely be a very special conversation especially pertaining to the 10th Annual Afterlife Conference, which is taking place in Chicago from June 4 to 7. I can personally attest to how beneficial to the grieving process the Afterlife Conference is, as I was an exhibitor at the Afterlife Conference in 2016 in Norfolk, Virginia, and I saw for myself how transformative it was for many of the attendees. Let's begin our interview with this question. Terry. Please tell us about your own experience with grief and how it led to your work as an educator, a counselor, and the founder of the Afterlife Conference, which has served as an educational, social, and spiritual gathering place for those seeking evidence of life after death. Well, I was always a metaphysically minded person. I was a very spiritual, mystical child. I read the Tibetan Book of the Dead when I was 19, and it resonated with me more than anything I had ever heard about death or God or anything in in my uh, cultural niche. And so I was always into this stuff way before my major loss experience. So now fast forward, um, my son was 10 years old. He was diagnosed with a rare metabolic disorder and given five to 10 years to live. I, I think I was 48 or something at the time. Um, and so I had these, he, he died at 16. So I had these six years uh, to experience caregiving and watching him decline. He went from being a perfectly normal kid to being total care in a wheelchair. He couldn't talk. He couldn't move his body. I had to feed him. He wore diapers um, and, and worse. And So I had that time to prepare for his death and also to prepare him. Because one of the things I learned was that kids in America at that age, they know nothing about death. None of us do. 
We never see a dead person. We don't grow up with it like we used to in the old days or in rural communities. And so I realized that his only concept of death is what he saw on TV and movies and video games, which is violence and screaming. And uh, I didn't want him to think it was going to be like that. So I started reading him books and different things that I found about Buddhist views of death and Native American views of death to get him off of that thinking. And thankfully, he didn't have like the heaven and hell thing because we didn't believe in that at all. So I was sort of educating him on different views of death. But of course, I realize now that he was the one educating me. Mm -hmm. So he died when he was 16. He had a beautiful death. Um, what do you um, call a beautiful death, Carrie? Oh, he, well, he was at home. He had no pain. He, you know, went through, I mean, I've been working in hospice ever since for the last 13 years. So I've seen many, many people die. He was the first person I ever saw die. There was no fear. There was no pain. He was basically out of his body the whole time. When you, when you watch, when you sit with a dying person and watch them die, at a certain point, they're in what we call active dying. And to the untrained eye, it would appear that they are unconscious. And they're laying there like this. Just eyes closed, mouth open. Um, what's happening metaphysically is their soul is out of their body at that point. And they're in no pain. They don't feel anything. Though they are still aware of what's around them. And I knew this. And so I knew not to disturb him, not to go up and shake him and go, hello, Danny, mommy, sir. You don't do that at that stage. I don't know how I knew that, but I did. So that's, that, that's a beautiful death. And more and more people are, are dying that way now instead of in hospitals with interventions. And um, 30 minutes after he died, I was laying there holding his body. And he came to me as clear as a bell and started talking to me. Wow. And it, in my first book, A Swan in Heaven, starts on that day. That's where the book starts. And he told me incredible things just about the process of dying and where he was and what our whole life plan was together. Now, this was in 2006, which is 13 years ago. And I had never read a book by a mother whose child had died. And I started receiving all this stuff. And I would... I'd be like driving in my car and I'd feel him talking to me and I had, I bought a little hand tape recorder and I would just start talking into the tape recorder and I'd record it and record it. Then I'd come home and I'd type it up and I ended up with hundreds of pages and that's how the first two books came to be. And I had no idea there were other books like that on the market until after I wrote my first book and I was researching how to market it. And that's when I found as far as I know, the only other three books that existed like that at the time, which was Sandy Goodman's book, uh, Susan Ward's book, and Ann Perrier's book, all talking to their sons on the other side. So that was my, uh, my big loss experience. And, but I was also into the metaphysics of dying. So after he died, because the experience of being with his soul as it started to separate from the body really intrigued me. I said, I want to keep doing this. And I thought maybe I should go to nursing school. You know, how do I get to do this more? And then I discovered hospice volunteering. So that's how I got started with that. But that was only, only the beginning. Were you always able to um, hear or did it just kick in after Daniel died? Were you able, always able to get messages like that? No. Not really. That was not, you know, getting messages like that was never part of my life. But I knew toward the end of his life that I would be getting messages. Because in the last three years of his life, he couldn't talk. And so we started communicating telepathically, which is not such a big deal. Because when you have a baby, your baby can't talk. But you know what your baby needs, right? Mm -hmm. I was also working with a teacher at the time who was an amazing channel and so I was having readings with her and she was bringing in messages about, about Danny, you know, and saying to me, you know, you two have, you have this work to do together. And when he dies, it's not going to stop there. You can keep 
going. So I, I was expecting it. So, and how did all of this lead to this? Um, you're founding the Afterlife Conference. Oh, well, okay. So that was about four years later. I had already written two books, I think, at that point. And a lady. <laughs> and so you've probably heard of a group called the Compassionate Friends. It's an organization for parents whose children have died. Yes. They were having their conference in Portland, Oregon, which is where I live. And I was like, oh, boy, I'm going to go speak at that conference. I was already starting to do some speaking and some teaching and some workshops. And I sent them my little pitch. And I said, you know, I have this book and I've got messages from my child. And they wrote me the nastiest letter back and said, we absolutely do not support such things. We do not allow any presentations on this sort of thing. Nothing spiritual. Um, if you, you know, people who think they're hearing messages from their dead kids, that only upsets our other parents who are not hearing messages. I mean, it was just nasty and brutal. And I found out later that they had rejected many other authors who also were teaching this, like Bill Guggenheim, for instance, who was kind of like the leader of this whole thing. They wouldn't let him talk there. They wouldn't let Evan Alexander or Sandy Goodman or anybody talk there. So I got so pissed off about that that I said, I'm going to start my own conference. And this was in 2010. And I got in touch with Bill Guggenheim and Sandy Goodman and all these people. And I said, hey, let's put on a show. Let's, let's start our own conference because the other, only other conference that exists like this isn't going to listen to us. And so that's how it started. And a bunch of us, we each put in like $200 and, you know, for some seed money. I mean, it was nothing. We started with like you know, $1,000. And the conference was successful, and I was able to pay everybody back their $200, and it took off from there. Now, this will be our 10th year. That's fantastic, and it's been growing and growing and growing exponentially, which is... It doesn't really grow like that. It kind of goes, it grows and shrinks and grows and shrinks and grows and shrinks. So 2014 was our biggest year. We had 450 people at the conference, but something happened. I changed it at that point. And what was also happening for me during this 10 years of the conference is I, I learned pretty quickly that as a hospice volunteer, I was not allowed to talk to the patients or their families about their spiritual experiences and their visions and their messages. That's the best part. That, well, but if, as a volunteer, you're not allowed to can't do it. Mm -hmm have to be trained to do that and you can't just walk in and talk to somebody about that you really can't even though you know you think you know but you don't know what that person's experience and you don't know if they're catholic or what they are so you can't just walk in there's a there is a proper way to do that you know and and so i wanted to do that so i went back to school i got a religious studies degree i went and trained as a chaplain because as a chaplain we're trained how to have those conversations with people without projecting our own theology or judging theirs or leading them in any particular direction. There is a skill to it. So through these whole years of the afterlife conference, I've been in school the whole time. And so I was getting more academic and more interested in research and things like that. So by 2014, I wanted to move the conference a little more into the mainstream. I didn't want it to just be full of mediums and crystal healers and Reiki people. I wanted some of that, but I did not want that to be the main thing. And so I sort of dialed that down and started bringing in uh, afterlife researchers from universities, religious scholars, counselors, more mainstream stuff. And I lost half my audience. Wow. that. And so we, it really shrunk, but now we're building it back up because I want hospice nurses to attend. I want doctors to attend. I don't want to preach to the choir. That's wonderful that you're educating them. That's, that's the whole idea. That's <laughs> fantastic. So tell me about some of the people that you're going to have at this year's conference. And can you give our listeners an example of the healing that's taken place during some of these conferences? So that they know as a person coming to learn and all, what happens to them? Well, that's a really good question. 
Um, well, okay, I'll start with the mediums because I know that's what your listeners are interested in. So we do have wonderful mediums. You know, we, we have Suzanne Northrup every year. We have Thomas John now almost every year. Um, and on Sunday morning, they do, you know, the big uh, general gallery session. And there's no way to describe how a good evidential reading is healing. It's just beyond description. Well, I can attest to that because when my husband died, the first person I heard, um, John Edward was the first person who channeled Saul. And it was okay. absolutely life-changing life changing for me. Yeah. And I've had Thomas John on my podcast. So everyone listening, you can check him out. You can check out Suzanne Northrup. They're amazing. They are amazing. They're totally amazing. It is. I remember one year at the conference, Suzanne was doing a massive audience reading. And she said, I see two horses running across the back of the room, a black horse and a white horse. Do they belong to anybody? And this woman stood up sobbing and saying, those are mine. They died in a barn fire. Oh, my. Six months ago, my two horses, a black one and a white one. So that's the kind of stuff that we've seen mediums do. But, you know, Suzanne and Thomas are at the top of the heap. And John Edward, there are not many that are that good. Right. I have a funny Suzanne Northrup uh, story, too. I went to a seance with Suzanne many years ago um, when she was not as famous as she is today. And she's sitting and she says to a woman at the, at the seance, I'm getting a male energy. It feels like a husband energy. And why is he surrounded by five gerbils? And turned out the man had five pet gerbils. Oh, that, yeah. I'm telling you. I was, wow, that was, that was amazing to me. Yeah, it is. I know. So that's like a really big piece of the healing that happens. But we also have, we now have grief sharing sessions, which we didn't have before. But instead of just putting a bunch of grievers into a room together, I, I have them being facilitated by a professional. So that's really important. The other thing I've brought in that's very important to me is multicultural perspectives on death in the afterlife. Because, you know, here in this woo-woo scene that we're in we talk about near-death experiences and the tunnel of light and the angels and the loved ones that is only our cultural perspective because if you're a hindu you're not going to see jesus if you're a christian you're not going to see shiva if you're an african zulu you're going to see something completely different because near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences are completely culturally subjective and so it's it's very dangerous teaching to assume that everybody gets a tunnel of light everybody gets a life review we don't know this these are just the stories that we have from people in our culture so i started looking into history of other cultures so there's a wonderful book called um a Traveler's Guide to the Afterlife by Mark Mirabello we had him at the conference in 2017 and there's another guy, um, Gregory Shushan, who wrote a book, a very academic book on um, near-death experiences across cultures and throughout history. So for example, in the Zulu tribe, they believe that we can reincarnate as animals, but only a chief can become a lion. Wow. And this is so far-fetched from anything we would think because we don't have chiefs and we don't have lions. So, you know, we have to consider that we're creating doctrine even within our own new age anti-doctrine structure. So I really am careful about that. And so, you know, when somebody says, what happens in a near-death experience, I'm gonna say anything. Depends on the person who's having it. Right, it depends on the person and the cultural influences. And so we don't have a lot of records. I mean, we have uh, the group IMs and they've got all these wonderful stories, but they're all basically from, you know, white people in America. So one of the things I try to teach is we need to expand this because the afterlife is very multicultural. It's not just what we think it is. Yeah, people are dying all over the world. It's not just what we experience. And for our listeners, IONS is the International Association of Near-Death Experiencers. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's a wonderful organization because it 
supports people who have had these experiences. I'm one of them and I've spoken uh, to them also. So um, everyone is, uh, this is wonderful that we're enlightening all of you and giving you some insights about this. And for a moment, uh, we're gonna take a break. Thank you, Terry. We're going to allow a minute for our sponsors who keep this podcast free for all of you, our listeners, and we're going to be right back. We're back. Thanks for tuning in to a very special interview with Dr. Terry Daniel. Let's continue on with this question. Terry, what can our Grief and Rebirth podcast listeners actually look forward to? You've spoken about the fact they're going to listen to multicultural perspectives about death. They're going to have mediums um, communicating to deceased loved ones. They're going to, um, they're going to be workshops to help Grievers, is there anything else or other ways you'd like to expound upon what they're going to get from going and having been there? And I'm glad you know I was there in 2014 when you started to change the... Uh, Were you there twice? I, w- I was there in 2014. In oh, no, I'm sorry, 2016, I apologize. Yeah, you were right, 2016. Yeah. Yeah. I remember you because you had bagels at your table. That's I true. did. <laughs> Well, my book is called They Serve Bagels in Heaven. I remember walking by and eating your bagels. (laughs) I also lent you a couple of essential oils because you were doing a shaman. Oh, that's right. Thank you for reminding me. You're welcome. That's another thing that we have. So, you know, we're, we're not just about grief and we're not just about mediumship. And because we like having this multicultural perspective, we've had since, I I guess, really since the beginning, um, I have some of my personal teachers who are shamans, and we bring them in every year, and they teach about how to do ritual and ceremony um, to facilitate travel between dimensions and also to facilitate grief healing. Uh, ritual and ceremony is hugely important, and we use it for everything for, you know, for struggling with grief. Uh, We have a big closing ceremony on Sunday at the end of the conference. So that's a beautiful piece of it. Uh, At the upcoming conference in 2020, we've got Robert Moss, who is really well known as a dream expert. And he's teaching a workshop on communicating with the other side through dreams. That's great. Yeah, and we, uh, we're, we're able to give continuing education credits now for nurses and social workers and psychologists, so we've got... Well, tell us about that, because I'm sure that there are nurses and psychologists and people are listening to us and going, whoa, I can go to this amazing yeah. conference and get credits? I'm, there may be people interested in that, so... Yeah, well, this is something I've been working on for years, and I finally got... And this was part of the thing about moving it more into the mainstream, because you can't get CE credits for reading with a medium. You know, it has to be academically sound. So last year was the first year we were able to give CE credits. And this year, I think we have 24 CE hours. I'm not exactly sure. And so we've got, for instance, a full day workshop on uh, by Jerry Grace Lyons, who founded the Home Funeral Movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's basically a full day training in death, death midwifery. And you get a certificate uh, in death doula training. I've got a Buddhist scholar talking about Buddhist rituals for transferring consciousness out of the body into the cosmos at death. Uh, I've got a couple things on complicated grief. We've got somebody who does sound healing, uh, sound um, meditations for grief, and also sound work for helping the dying separate from their body. Can you define for our listeners what complicated grief is? I think that some of them would not. I happen to know what that is, but I'm sure a lot of people are going, what the heck is complicated grief? Okay, so um, what a lot of people don't understand, and a lot of therapists don't understand this, which is why people don't understand it, because therapists aren't trained in this unless they're trained in grief. Grief is normal. All the things that you feel when you're grieving is exactly what's supposed to happen when you have a loss. There's nothing that needs to be treated or you don't need therapy, unfortunately. It just is what it is and you have to go through it. And that sounds pretty harsh, but counseling is useful because um, one of the things that's important in the process is that you tell your story 
and your friends and loved ones are not comfortable listening to you talk about your loss and they're going to get tired of it after a while. So that's what a counselor or a group is really good for. A group is good because you'll have people who've had similar experiences and you'll bond with that. But that stuff only takes you so far. Um, and there is a, a path that grief healing follows. Now, this has nothing to do with stages of grief. That's been thrown out as a viable theory a long time ago. But there are certain things that you do in the process of healing. One of them is, for example, recognizing the loss. So let's say you lost a loved one in war, missing in action, and you never saw the body. Uh, you never get to fully recognize the loss. Or let's say that you're just in denial. I've heard so many people, <laughs> especially bereaved parents, say, I will never accept that my child was murdered. Even though they know the child was murdered, there's that lack of acceptance and lack of recognition. That's one of the things that can get you into complicated grief, which I'll define in a minute. And there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff. So what complicated grief is basically is that you're not following a normal trajectory of healing. It's just like if you get the flu and somehow you get an infection and so now your flu has complications or you've heard you know, someone has a surgery and there were complications because the surgery didn't go as planned. Something complicated the outcome or complicated the healing process. That's what complicated grief is. Normal grief should progress in a certain way. And after a period of time, and I'm not going to even name that period of time because it's different for everybody, but let's say if three years after your husband dies, you're still having symptoms of clinical depression, you're suicidal, you can't work, you can't function, function you're eating too much, drinking too much, sleeping too much, that's not healthy, that's not normal, that's complicated grief. Would you say sometimes it's exacerbated by the fact that there are issues that happen in a, like for instance, if a kid was abandoned in a childhood and then they lose someone later on, would that bring up those feelings of abandonment and make that complicated, more complicated grief? Yes, it would bring up those feelings of abandonment, but it wouldn't necessarily make it complicated grief. You know, there's a lot of things that contribute to complicated grief and, and it's, it's, a recipe. There's just I can't just say that this will make you have complicated grief. It starts out with each person's ability to be resilient. So if you're a person, for example, who can is good at making decisions and acting on them, is is good at at accepting disappointments and moving on, you know, then you're going to be less prone to complicated grief. Um, regardless of your abandonments and all the things that you have. But if you're a person who just crumbles really easily, then the death of your husband or your child is going to be different for you than somebody who has more innate ability to be resilient. It's, it's a lot of stuff to just explain in a question like this, but there are factors that can contribute to complications in the grief healing process. For example, one of the things that's really important, one of the tasks that we have to do to heal is to be able to talk about our loved one. So when you gather together with the family at Thanksgiving, you want to talk about him. You know, you want to say, you know, remember Saul used to make stuffing and it was so good. And didn't we have fun with Saul when he was here? You need to be able to do that. And your family probably doesn't want to do that because it makes them uncomfortable if it was a death that was socially unacceptable, like a drug overdose or a suicide or a gay person who died from AIDS, and your family and your social group is uncomfortable with it, they're not going to let you have that reminiscing and mentioning the person you're bringing them in. That can contribute to complicated grief. Sure, it's like a dam. You've got all those feelings. You can't express it. Where does it go? Yeah, well, that's true. And that's, you know, so you can express it to your counselor or your support group, but there's a lot of other stuff. So let's say you have religious beliefs. Let's say your loved one died by suicide and you believe that they're going to go to hell for that or they are in hell. That's totally going to complicate your grief process because you're spending your energy worrying about that instead of doing the steps of healing. So there's all kinds of stuff. You can, um, you can read about it in my new book, which is called Grief and God When Religion Does More Harm Than Healing. It talks a lot about complicated grief 
in relation to religious beliefs. But it's all look it up on the internet. There's plenty of your book is on my reading list. Uh, I definitely want to read it. Is there anything else you'd like to say about this book and any of the others? I know you touched on the first book that you wrote, but you wrote two others also. So, right? You've written four. I've got four now, which kind of amazes me. Um, the second one was kind of, you know, this was, when was that, 2010? So that was like four years after my son died. And at that point, I was, you know, working in hospice and getting training and chaplaincy. And my son was kind of guiding me through all that. So in that book, I was talking about the practical experience of being around death and grief. But my son was piping in every once in a while and adding his perspective. And then the next book after that, which was 2014, was Turning the Corner on Grief Street. And at that point, it, it was more clinical and less spiritual. And then the fourth book really became very, because at that point, I'm in a doctoral program. So it's like the fourth book is, is very academic. So the books and the afterlife conference and everything's kind of moved along as with me in my personal journey. Well, I think that what you do also um, l lends a lot of credence to um, to what you say because of your education and how grounded you are. A lot of people will say to me that they respond to what I do because I'm not, as they call, wavy, wavy, gravy, woo-woo. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm a more grounded person also. And with your education and who you are, I think that that's very helpful to people to... Um, the structure, the understanding, the knowledge, um, and and to think that if someone goes to the afterlife conference, someone like you, who is so not only enlightened but so educated about all of the facets of this field, it makes it even um, more fascinating and more beneficial to them to to be well, a part of this. Well, that's why I did it. You know, I mean, when I I was out there, you know, doing workshops and writing my first book or my second book. And I realized that I wanted to be taken seriously by the hospices and, you know, the different churches, you know, places where I could speak and teach. And I realized that if I didn't have that alphabet soup after my name, um, I wasn't going to be able to get into the doors that I wanted to get into. And it started when I wanted to become a hospice chaplain. You can't just walk into a hospice and say, hey, I'm a medium, you know, <laughs> let, me, let me help with your dead people. Or, hey, I'm a, I have a, I'm a person who's had a lot of grief and a big loss, and I call myself a grief coach, and I'd like to come and, and talk to your families. You can't do that. They're not going to let you in the door. So if you want to have access to, you know, the clinical world, you have to have the right credentials. This is something that I'm really kind of a, a stickler on right now. I remember at one conference, we have a panel called Conscious Dying in Clinical Settings. And this woman asked a question. She was, I don't know what she was, a medium, I guess, or, a, you know, a spiritual intuitive or something. And she was saying to us, how can I get a job doing this? You know, how can I, I mean, I should be in hospice grief groups helping the people. And we all laughed and said, you can't go to school and get a degree and, and become a psychologist. And then you can get that job. They're just not going to let you in that door without credentials. And I knew that. And so that's why I, I worked so hard at this. To, it's to very admirable. I mean, it's really admirable what you've accomplished. I, I, it's amazing. It's wonderful. And, I, and I, I compliment you over that. And you're helping so many people. If someone wants to get help from Dr. Terry Daniel, what or do you do individual healing sessions for people? Do you employ certain modalities? Um, what would that look like? Or do you do most of your work through the conference? I do most of my work in workshops. So you, my website is spiritualityandgrief.com. And I have a workshop called Grief as a Mystical Journey. Um, in fact, oh, this isn't going to air till February 5th. So um, I am now doing it online. It just started in January, uh, doing the online version. I've been doing this workshop for probably five or six years now. And so uh, I do private sessions by phone. It's not what I really focus on. But the way that I work with people is I really believe in 
and just giving you tools. So you can call me up and have one phone session with me. And what I'm going to do is give you a ceremony to do, a meditation to do, a book to read, a process to do, to release the stuck grief from your body and um, symbolically give it up, release it. doesn't mean detach from it. But I really believe in, in ceremonies and, and processes and tools to do that. So, for example, um, really, here's a simple one I do all the time. So uh, if you have a lot of guilt, let's say your teenager died by suicide, and you know the guilt over that is indescribable with any suicide, and you're really struggling, you have complicated grief, you're not living your life, you're not healthy, you're just sinking, sinking, sinking into this anger and this pain all the time. A simple process that I would give you in a workshop or in a private session is something that I call the sacred story string. So we take a piece of string or yarn about three feet long and we wrap it into a little ball. And while we're wrapping it up into a little ball, we tell the story of, in this case, all our anger, how angry we are. I'm angry at God for letting this happen. I'm angry at my loved one for killing himself. How can you do this to me? Blah, blah, blah. All the stuff that you're spewing all day, spew it into this little piece of string and tie it in a ball. And then what we do is we go outside and we untie it and we hang that string in a tree. And it stays there for the wind, the rain, the sun to carry those thoughts out away to, to God, to the universe, whatever you want to call it. And the symbolic act of removing it from your chest, from your mind, and putting it into the string and giving it to the elements actually promotes healing because we've created a, a representational object and we've moved it out of our body into a separate space. So it's not crippling us and killing us like that. So we do, those are the kinds of things that I do. And these are shamanic practices and they're incredibly healing. I, I believe that. And also if you, if you hold on to all that complicated emotion, That's then right. it's no surprise because there's a body-mind connection. There's no surprise that they may get to you physically in some way later on also. So yeah. I think that by releasing that, you are also helping. Your, it's a form of self-love also. Very much so. And people say, well, you can release it by exercise, you know, go running. It's like, it's not the same. You have to put it into a symbolic representation and move that object from point A to point B to represent the movement of the energy. One of the reasons that people hold on to their pain is because there's so many myths about grief that are um, taught by grief groups that are not facilitated by people who have any training and, you know, just untrained people. One of the things that drives me crazy about, for example, the compassionate friends is I have so many people who come to me, who've been to those groups who say, all it makes me feel worse to be there because all people are doing is telling their story over and over and over again. Then a new person comes in and they tell their story. And then all the old people retell their stories. And you stay stuck in your story and there are no tools to help you move somewhere else. And one of the things I hear from those folks all the time is this belief that they are taught that says the depth of the pain you feel is equal to the depth of the love you have for your child. There are so many things wrong with that because what that tells you is if you let your pain lessen, then your love is going to lessen along with it. So they believe that they have to stay in pain in order to be loyal to their, to their dead person. Doesn't have to be a child. That makes absolutely no sense. And there you're giving yeah. yourself a death sentence. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, what you should be teaching them is your pain is not exponentially connected to your love. Of course you have pain because you have love, but now you have to separate those two things. The love is okay. It's going to stay there. Nothing's ever going to happen to that. So just put it over there. And now let's look at your pain. They're not stuck together uh, with Velcro. You can peel them apart and work on your pain and your love will not diminish. But most people... Go ahead, Cherry. I, I didn't interrupt you. I was going to say because most people um, 
have have such a hard time letting go. Um, they uh, of of anything and giving themselves permission to uh, move past something. And I, and I believe that um, this is a, a really important point that you're making because I I do think a lot of people believe that. How can I let How can I let go of this pain? That way, I'm like going to let go of my child or letting go of, yeah. of whatever's happened. I had an experience myself when I came out um, with my book. And I had um, some references to um, ancient Israel and different things that were going on. And I went um, to a rabbi and, the, and, I, and I asked him, it could I talk to him about these things? And he, again, the religious aspect and everything, he said, I can't talk about this with you. And you're a woman. And we only go through people, rabbis who have, uh, you know, who are 40 years old and over and all of that kind of thing. And then I had another experience where I went to a, um, a group for grief healing and I was doing pretty well. And the woman there said to me, you're doing pretty well. Maybe we can have the women here call you and talk about their stories. And uh, it was just what you're saying. It was going to be regurgitation of all their stories. And I'm struggling to move forward from mine. And she's assigning me this responsibility to help them. I, I couldn't leave quickly enough. Yeah. Yeah, it was, exactly. it was it was very hurtful and destructive. Um, I know you of all people are going to know what the importance of healing is to share with our listeners. What would you say that that is? The importance of healing. Mm -hmm. Why should we all want to try to heal from the things? I don't know. Why why wouldn't we? I mean, the healing versus what? What's the healing? Versus staying in your pain, right. staying well, in your swamp. Yeah, well, I, I don't even know why that would even be a question that anybody would need the answer to. I mean, you know, people staying in their swamp think that they're healing. You know, they don't realize that they're not healing, I think is a really good way to say it. You know, they, you know, I'm, I'm, I'll tell you a story. It's in my new book. I met a man at, again, the Compassionate Friends at an event there. And his son had been murdered. And he said to me, I, no matter where I go, I want everyone in the world to know that my son was murdered. So when I go to the grocery store and the clerk checks me out and says, have a nice day, sir. I say, I never have a nice day. My son was murdered six years ago. And the poor little clerk says, oh, I'm so sorry. And he says, you'll never understand until it happens to your child. Oh, my God. He tells me the story. And, and he said, and I said to him, I understand why you're that angry, but I also know that you have options. You don't have to feel that way all the time. And he said, I don't want options. This is how I want to feel. And this man thinks he's healed. This is what healing looks like to him. You know, and because this is where he wants to stay. This is where he's comfortable. And I think it's because no one's, you know, we never had anybody given any tools or, I mean, there's so, you know, talk about complicated grief. That's like the ultimate example of it. And, you know, there was nothing I could do to help him right there on the spot, but in his mind, he's perfectly fine. And you know what I'm thinking? I feel sorry for all the people, all the intimate people he's associated with in his world because he's constantly beating them up with his story. Yeah, well, he probably doesn't be horrible. He probably doesn't have any intimate people anymore. Not because he's chasing them all away. Chasing them all away. And I'm sure everybody's trying to help him, but this is where he's decided to be. And a lot of people stay in that place. And, you know, I, I run a complicated grief Facebook group. And a lot of these people will say, I've had complicated grief for five years. And I just want to say, why? You know, and I know why it's because they're not ready to let go because they think if they let go of that, that they're going to lose something valuable. And what they mostly think they're going to lose is their memories, their connection with their loved one, their love. And what they don't realize is that that stuff will just get better when they heal. They're not going to lose anything. Well, actually, I experienced like when I was deep in my grief, I had I couldn't call up, call up certain memories. And the more I healed, the more I was able to embrace them and have them. 
Right. That's right. And the more uh, at peace and healed you are, the more the communications come from. Yes. So one of the first things I learned with my son in my first book is, and I was going through, you know, a divorce at the time and all kinds of stuff. And when I was angry like that, I got no connection to spirit. And so what, one of the things my son said is this whole process of me communicating with you now is to teach you how to calm yourself down and how to open your heart and heal yourself, because look at the reward you get for it. You get communication, you get to feel the presence of the divine. And so this is, this is the payoff. This is the quid pro quo, if you will. (laughs) (laughs) It's part of the expression. (laughs) I mean, I love to say, I say that in every interview. I try to get that in. Um, If you heal, this is the answer to your question. Why heal? If you heal, your heart is open and you can connect to spirit better. Yes. Um, Now all of our listeners want to come to the afterlife conference. Tell them how they can get more information, how they can sign up, what they can do. And uh, let's start there. Go to afterlifeconference.com. Very simple. Um, Read through the website, see what's on there. When you go to the registration page, you will see if you bring a friend, we have a special discount group rate where every person in your group gets $100 off, which is a really good deal. So. we, that's how we encourage you to bring friends. Uh, sorry, um, that's it. Afterlifeconference.com. Everything you need to know is right there. Okay, and is there anything, um, do you only have any kind of special offer for our Grief and Rebirth podcast? Oh, I do. Oh, thank you for reminding me. I forgot to tell you that. Um, I set up a discount code for your audience, and I believe it's GRB, which stands for, what's the name of your show again? Grief and Rebirth. Grief and rebirth. Okay, so it's GRB. Um, so when you go to register, if you're not doing the group rate with two or more people, it's just an individual rate. If you put in the promo code GRB, you get $50 off. Okay. That's, that's a pretty good deal. And Terry, what is your tip for finding joy in life? Uh, <laughs> um, so not to be too attached to the concept of joy. That would be my tip. One of the things that I have learned is that um, Joy and pain exist side by side. You can't have one without the other. The more you resist pain and do not lean into it and are not willing to work with it, the less joy that you're going to have. Um, There's a wonderful teacher named Pema Chodron, a Buddhist nun who um, writes about this, that, you know, joy and pain are like, well, she doesn't say this, but they're like opposite sides of a battery, positive and negative. You have to have both sides in order to have a complete connection. So even though I was, we were talking before about not being too attached to your pain, you can also not be too attached to your joy. You have to allow the ebb and flow of that energy. One of the big pieces of grief theory that we have now is something called the dual process model, where you alternate between focusing on loss and focusing on healing. And you go back and forth between those two focuses constantly, 10 times a day, three times a year, whatever. And it's that fluctuating and that movement that keeps the energy flowing. So that's that would be my answer about joy. I think that's a wonderful answer because I actually know people who will say, I'm afraid to let myself feel joy because I know that there's going to be pain. And I say, well, if you know there's going to be pain, let the joy in. It's, that's all part of life. <laughs> Where you get it. And, you know, and pain, pain isn't, always that bad some you know pain it's all about leaning into the pain and working with it rather than being so afraid of it it's gonna be there no matter what and I mean I could go on I know we have to stop in five minutes but one of the things that uh really annoys me about the law of attraction movement you know based on what people read in that book the secret which I think is one of the most horrible spiritual untruths ever told is that you can use your intention and positive thinking to create a world where you have no pain, where you just have everything you want, money, wealth, health, love. And if so, if you have pain, if something doesn't work, if you're poor, if you're abandoned by your spouse, if you're sick, then somehow you're not manifesting properly. You're doing something wrong. 
Because if you're doing it right according to this idea of the law of attraction, then you should be having nothing but wonderful things. And that's a terrible idea because it doesn't work that way. There actually is something called the law of attraction and it works just the opposite. You attract what your soul needs to fulfill its plan on earth, what you came here to learn. So if your child dies like mine did, that is something that I brought in. My consciousness brought that in because it's part of my path. It's part of my curriculum and my agenda and his too. You gotta have both. You cannot create an abundant, perfect, beautiful life with your thoughts. And a lot of people hate me for saying that. My attitude is if you if you really need to attract a, a perfect life, you you should cross over to the other side because they have they have none, they have none of these problems. This is school. We come here to learn all of these uh, lessons that we're here to learn. That's exactly right. We don't come here for unconditional love. We had that before we got here. We had that before. Exactly. Yeah. Terry, I think one day we're going to have another, another interview and there'll be a lot more that you can share with us and, and teach all of us because this has been absolutely wonderful. And it's just, especially, I want to encourage all of our listeners to get on that site and look into the Afterlife Conference. It is truly worthwhile. And for many different reasons, depending on what your need is, if you want those continuing education credits or you're grieving or you want to learn more, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And I think you will also meet many wonderful people, which could be life-changing for you because it's also a, a social uh, experience when you're, when you're right when you're getting camaraderie with a lot of people who are also seekers and wanting to improve their lives and, and change their perspectives about different things it's very uplifting really are you planning to come this year um i wasn't but we could we could have that discussion at, at okay. a point um and i want to from my heart terry i want to thank you for the inspiring work you're doing because you are helping so many people to perceive loss and grief in a positive new way. And we need that. Thank and in you. this, my, really, I thank you. And in the spirit of learning more about grief and loss and aspiring healing choices, here's a reminder that grief and rebirth is all about this. We're on it, everyone. So you can see the full show notes and all grief and rebirth. Terry is now part of a tremendous healing community. And we are all here to show you that there are different paths that you do not have to suffer. And uh, you can see all the full show notes and all Grief and Rebirth podcast episodes on irieweinberg.com. And thank you for following us and liking us on social at, at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks again, Terry. And thank you to all our listeners for joining us. And as I often like to say, to be continued. Many blessings. Bye for now.